Church on the Trail family, we are so excited that you joined us today because you get to experience God Plunge right after service. So now listen closely because I have some announcements for you. Next Sunday, February 16th, is Communion Sunday. Be here at 1030 as we get ready to hear an incredible message and partake in communion together. Let's gather and remember the sacrifice Jesus paid for all of us. We're looking forward to our next midweek gathering happening on February 19th at 6 p.m. This will be an awesome time of fellowship and community. Dinner will be $5 a person or $20 per family. You can visit our events page on the website to register for the meal. We really hope to see you there. Coming up on February 23rd, we will be having our God Plunge Party. This is a special way of celebrating our kids as they make Jesus the leader and forgiver of their lives. We will celebrate them with balloons, a picture documenting their baptism, and a special gift. If you have any questions about this experience, please contact Allison Judah. Thank you guys so much for joining us this Sunday. We really appreciate it, and we hope you have a great day and an even greater week. Good morning. So good morning, y'all. Um, I want to, before we get started this morning, <clears throat> I want to if, if, welcome y'all. Welcome for sure. Even a bigger welcome if this is your first time here. And if it is, I want to get one of these in your hand. It's a little welcome kit that kind of gives you kind of where we stand on this or that and some of, you know, what our values are and some information about uh, some different ministries in our church. <clears throat> and if, if it is your first time here or if you've never gotten one of these and want one, just if you'll raise your hand and Susan or Rhonda will get one of these into your hand. And I want to call your attention as well to... Uh, and to a, a little insert that is in the worship guide, and I'm assuming everybody got a worship guide. If you didn't, raise your hand. We'll get one of those in your hands too. This is in there. It's called Life Track. Life Track is like maybe it's a little like this on steroids or something. But Life Track begins uh, next Sunday morning, 8:30 on the kids' side. It's about an hour or so of. It's almost like Church on the Trail 101 and Church on the Trail 102. Two Sundays in a row. We want, uh, we really want everybody in our church family to go through that. And we're doing it next Sunday and the next one and two, and then we're doing the next two Sundays one and two, and then we're doing the next two Sundays one and two, and after that we're doing it in the last two Sundays of every month going forward. But we are, and we're going to be talking about this today. But we're going to be uh, rolling out membership in our uh, in our church family, and that's one of the subjects. Uh, it's not the subject of Life Track, but it's one of the subjects in Life Track. So we really, really encourage y'all. We'll have breakfast, a little breakfast over there. Uh, so we encourage y'all to come. You can register at the Connections Desk, or you can register uh, online at churchonthetrail.org. And so let's get started this morning. And <clears throat> I'm not sure how that got in there, but it did get in there. And that's our little grandbaby, little Z. And that was yesterday. Wasn't that yesterday? Yeah. Yesterday in Atlanta, it snowed, apparently. That's the first time he's at, he sat up on his own. Probably because he was cold and he sat up. I don't know. But anyway, I, I don't know. Susan must have snuck that into the slides. Anyway, anyway, today I want to take a kind of a detour. And this is right along, kind of right along the lines of this life track thing that we're talking about, but I want to take a detour a little bit from the series that we've been in called Not a Fan, and I want, to, I want us to have a real conversation, um, and I don't know, maybe it was last Sunday evening, maybe Monday, and I feel like 
you know, I don't know how God speaks, and I'm, I'm very hesitant to say God spoke to me because I don't hear voices in my ear, but I've, I, again, I don't think that's necessarily the way that God speaks to us today. I feel like he speaks to us through his word and just through impressions or whatever, but I just felt a little bit of an overwhelming need to have this conversation today, sort of in the life of where our church is and, and had this conversation about, about church. And so, look, I am convinced uh, that the it's all about me kind of mindset that is all up in our culture that we live in today is absolutely infiltrated churches all across America, all across America. And I think that it is primarily probably because there is a, a sure enough lack of understanding of the church. Of, of what the church is and what the church ought to be. And I want to have a real conversation about that today. And I, I'm going to use a, a, a kind of a scientific word, and it's the word symbiotic. Symbiotic. Everybody heard the word symbiotic, symbiosis? A symbiotic relationship, maybe even better said, symbiotic growth is the growth that occurs between two organisms or two uh, whatevers where both both of those organisms benefit. A symbiotic relationship is really when uh, it's like uh, things living together where the both uh, experience a win-win. Parasitic growth though on the other hand is the growth that happens in one organism because it's feeding off of the other organism. And we got to ask ourselves how is it that you and I, how are we functioning in this organism, this living, breathing organism that we call the church? Am I a spiritual parasite? You know, like, sing to me, preach to me, pray for me, counsel me, help me, but expect nothing from me. Y'all, that's a parasite. And a Christian that is interested in symbiotic growth says, of course, yes, I mean, of course I have needs. Of course I have needs. But I'm also willing to give because everyone needs to benefit, right? So why is it, and I really kind of don't understand, why is it that so many people are content to attend a church but never get connected in community? They never commit to growing. Why do so many people never join together and lock arms together with the folks that are sitting next to them? Why do so many people across our country, really, why do they, um, do they, they never commit to committing to anything? Like, why is it that way? And I believe and I think that, that there's probably a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is the fact, y'all, we live in a culture all across, probably all across the globe, but for sure in America, that is riddled with commitment phobia. And I don't know if that's a real word or not, but commitment phobia. That people are petrified of and unwilling to commit to anything, anything because of some twisted kind of fear that something better may come up. Something, quote, better may come along. Something better may overshadow the growth group. Something better may overshadow Sunday morning coming to church. Uh, something, quote, better may overshadow the outreach, the, the, the midweek gathering, whatever it is. And it is consumerism and it is individualism at its finest. Now, I'll say this too, though, that I think 
that we have done a pretty sorry job as the church, you know, big picture, across Christendom, really, of teaching based on the scripture what the church is supposed to be about. So I want us to dive in today on, I only know one way to do stuff, y'all. I, I know how to look at this Bible and see what this Bible says about this or that, whatever it speaks to. And so I want us to look and see what does God's Word say and what does it teach us about the local church. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Now, up front, kind of laying across the top of all this, is the fact, the fact that in God's economy, in God's economy, the local church is a crazy important piece of the puzzle. The local church is, is, is critical. In God's economy, the local church is critical. I think that's one of your little fill-in-the-blanks in the worship guide. The, and the scriptures, the Bible talks about uh, how the church is both universal and local. And here's what that means. It's universal. If it's universal and it's local, then, then sometimes when the Bible refers to the church, it's referring to all the believers of all time. Every single person that, is, that has bent the knee, bowed the knee, uh, and placed trusting faith in Christ as their Savior. Throughout history, one body, that's the universal church. However, that is not, absolutely not, the only way that the Scripture, uh, that the Bible pictures uh, the church. Scripture also talks about how the church is local, how it is in a local place, in a geographic place at a certain time in history. The scripture talks about the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch and the church in Ephesus and the church in Galatia and the church in Thessalonica and churches all over uh, the place. In fact, the Greek word that is used there is ecclesia. Ecclesia, it's translated church. And that word is used 114 times in the New Testament, 90 times out of the 114 it is referring to a local church somewhere and so look I've heard people say and and you may be saying this as well uh, and here it is you may be saying or you may have heard this well I'm part of the universal church I I am a, a part of the body of Christ I'm a believer and you know what that's enough for me I don't need to be committed I don't need to be bought in I don't be, need to be connected I don't need to be involved in a local church well, okay but there's a problem in that and the problem uh, with that is really based on what the Bible says based on what God's Word says that if that is 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 what we're saying we're trying to live a Christian life our Christian lives completely contrary to the biblical pattern and the biblical teachings about the church if we're just gonna sit uh, and just be content to be part of the universal body of Christ we're gonna miss out on what the Lord is calling us to to do and to be as part of his church overwhelmingly if you read in the New Testament it shows us how all the different writers human writers in the New Testament how important and how significant that the local church is and 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 how important y'all it, it's just so important to be connected with other believers to be uh, sort of bound together with other believers look the local church wherever that may be the local church is the visible and tangible expression of the body of Christ 
it is the, the, the visible and the tangible. You can touch and see and feel and hear. It's the tangible expression of the body of Christ. How is it that Christ builds, uh, uh, built his church throughout the New Testament? How is it that he built his church today? And he is building visible, local churches. Visible, local communities of faith like Church on the Trail. How is it that he is glorified? He's glorified through visible, local churches. Through visible, local communities of faith. How is it that, uh, that he's loving on folks today? Through visible, local, tangible communities of faith. He did it all throughout the New Testament and he's doing it today. So how is it that we define what a local church is? How has Christian history for the last few thousand years, how has Christian history defined the local church? In the 1500s, John Calvin said this. He said, wherever the word of God is preached and heard and the sacraments administered, and he's talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, where the sacraments are administered according to Christ's institution, there you've got a church. I sent an email out to y'all this week. And I asked you, how would you define the local church? And, and I got, I don't know, 50 or 60 responses back. I want to tell you what a few of you said. They were awesome, first of all. I got one, and one of the ladies in our church, she said, it is a place where we prepare for war. The local church is a place where we prepare for war. What an awesome definition. Because inside of that definition that she gave us is spiritual war, right? The church should be equipping people for the battle that takes place out there because there is a battle that's taking place. Another person said that the local church is a community of believers, a family that goes through life together and encourages, instructs, and assists on that journey. The driving force is to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to be a light to who he is. Another great definition of the local church. We are supposed to be a light that shines in a dark world. Great definition. Somebody else said that the local church is a growth group under the umbrella of the church that produces, equips, encourages, and sends disciples out into the world. Another great definition. Kind of a great commission definition that the church equips people and sends them out into the world to be a witness for the Lord. And the last one I want to read you that somebody gave us, and it was a short one, but it's packed with stuff. She said... A place, the local church is a place of hope and a bridge to God. That the local church is the bridge that leads people to the foot of the cross and they find hope there. Great, these are great definitions. I want to give you my definition after searching the scripture what, uh, of what I believe a local church is. And it is a local group of believers, and it should be on the screen, yeah. A local group of believers joined together under biblical leadership to grow and mature in the likeness of Christ and express his love to everyone around them. So these visible, tangible communities of faith, what are they made up of? What is our church here? What is it made up of? Somebody say something. Believers. Believers, Christians like me and you who've locked arms together and are committed, committed, and yeah, on varying levels committed, and that's okay but committed to doing life together, to doing life together, to, to growing together. And so I would say based on what we've talked about so far, what we've learned so far about sort of about what the scripture 
teaches about the local church, what the New Testament teaches about the local church, that we would conclude this and about this locking arms together and being a community of faith is that individualism, this me, 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 me thing, individualism in the church is equivalent to immaturity in the faith. And that is a tough truth, sort of a tough truth. Let that soak in for a minute. Individualism in the church is equivalent to immaturity in the faith. So there's your 12-minute or so introduction. What do we do with that? Like, what do we do with everything that we just talked about? All this talk about the local church. Ephesians chapter 4, start in verse 13. Paul tells us, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, okay? Paul tells us, and he's telling um, this church in Ephesus, that the aim of his ministry in Ephesus is to build up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He goes on in verse 15. Rather than that, rather than being children tossed about, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 121 words in the English, at least, there in those four verses, 13, 14, 15, and 16. 121 words. And I can sum up in two words what Paul is telling them and what he's telling us. And it is this, grow up. He's saying, grow up. And in those verses, he gives us four things that kind of define or describe what grow, growing up and being a grown-up sort of mean. First thing is this, that you and I are to be mature in stature. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How many of y'all grew up, and I hope I pronounced this word right, with a stadiometer in your house? Now maybe the better question is, what is a stadiometer? Any doctors in the house? All right, a stadiometer is a medical device for measuring how tall you are. We didn't have one in my house. I didn't grow up in, the, in a doctor's house, in a doctor's family. But uh, what we did have was a kitchen door. How many of y'all had a kitchen doorway? Raise your hand. We had a kitchen doorway. And every so often, me and my brother and sister would stand against that kitchen door, and my dad would put a ruler, like a yardstick, across the top of my head, and he liked to do it kind of hard. But he'd put it across the top of my head, you know, and he'd draw a little line, and he'd write my initials, and then he'd write um, the date and where it was. And, and, and we would do that, and he would compare it to, have we grown since the last time he did that? You know, have we grown? And, and he would, my brother and sister would be there, and we'd kind of be comparing how much she grew, my sister, and how much my brother grew and all that stuff. But God measures his children with a different yardstick. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is what verse 13 says. And y'all understand, you got to, that 
that the standard and the goal of your maturity is to be like Christ. It is to be like Christ. Paul uses two words in verse 13 that we got to examine. He uses the faith and then he uses knowledge. And faith here is not like uh, it's not like a verb. Faith here is not an act of trust. It's not like like I have faith in blank. That's not what he's saying. It is tied to unity in the body of Christ, and it is referring to the faith. It's like a noun. It's referring to the faith as a body of beliefs, like we're unified in the faith. We're unified and should be unified in this body of beliefs, like we're on the same page, believers really around the world, on the same page on the essential beliefs that make a Christian a Christian. On those things, all of us should be unified. And we may not be unified on do you have to, do you have to dunk and be immersed when you baptize or is sprinkling okay? I think the text of the scripture speaks to you should be immersed. The word baptizo means immersion. But I ain't fixing to fight with somebody over that. If you want to sprinkle, sprinkle. Like that's not a, a, a hill worth dying on, right? There's all kinds of stuff that Christians fuss and argue about that are absurd. Like we all need the essential things, the gospel message, the cross. We should all be unified around the cross. So the faith. And then he talks about knowledge. Not just random knowledge, but knowledge with a specific object. Not just head knowledge, not just, not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, like I can quote the whole scripture, but I've never met Christ. Like, really? No, that's not the kind of knowledge he's talking about. Verse 13 tells us that the object of the knowledge is Christ. The object of the knowledge is the Son of God. That's the words he uses. And so you and I should always be struggling to fully understand who Christ is and who we are in Christ. It's not just head knowledge. The Greek word that is used there is apignosis. And it's a word that speaks to intense knowledge. It's a word that speaks to uh, experiential knowledge. It's a word that speaks to, to uh, uh, the knowledge of something or someone that powerfully influences uh, our spirituality. It's the kind of knowledge that comes from personal involvement in something or someone. And if, that, if that's a, that knowledge is a component of growing up or maturing uh, is becoming and becoming more and more like Christ, then knowing him is super critical. When me and my brother and my sister used to get measured in that doorway, we'd all the time measure our growth compared to each other. You know, I, my brother's name's Stuart. I'm like, Stuart, how much did you grow this time? Of course, he was five years older than me, so he was way you know, taller than me. Uh, my sister was seven years older than me, but she was way shorter than all of us. But we used to compare like each other and how much we grew. And the problem with many of us today and the problem with many in the church is that we do that. We spend an inordinate amount of time, like way more time comparing ourselves with the dude or the lady sitting next to us. And, and maybe, like I don't know, maybe compared to him or him or her, Maybe you look kind of good, maybe you don't, maybe you look kind of bad, but all of that is irrelevant because the yardstick, y'all, is Jesus Christ. He is the standard. So the question then is, are you growing 
in Christ-likeness? Are you becoming more and more and more like Him? Are you looking like Him? Are you trying to think like Him? Are you trying to do the things that He did? And I'm not talking about miracles. I'm talking about loving on folks. So number one, we got to be mature in stature. And number two, we got to be mature. We're to be mature in stability. Look at verse 14. Paul continues on. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So in verse 14, Paul, he paints this picture using a, a kind of a different sort of metaphor of immature people who, are, who find themselves floundering around uh, uh, in a sailboat and rolling and rocking back and forth, violently tossed around by the wind and the waves. And it's the wind and the waves of beliefs. That's what he's talking about. And then Paul talks at the end of this verse about trickery and about deceit that steers people down the road of false beliefs, false teaching. Y'all, this, this is about immature Christians being led astray. That's what Paul is talking about. Because one of the, the purposes of the book of Ephesians, of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, was to battle and to fight uh, the false teaching that was going on. There were false teachers. You know, this is early in the first century. There were false teachers. This is right shortly after the resurrection. And, and Paul is writing to defend the faith against the false teaching that's going on. And I'm telling you this, it is heartbreaking. Like it is super heartbreaking to see believers buying into false doctrine and sometimes false beliefs and sometimes in crazy, like bizarre things. I get amazed by people that, and it's been this way probably since the day uh, in 2001 that I got saved. Like I get amazed how people don't believe. Like, they don't believe that Christ died on a cross to pay for our sins and that we can be saved. Like, they don't believe that. They don't believe the gospel. It blows me away that people don't, but I know the reality is that most of the world doesn't. But I also get amazed and blown away by the things that people will believe, the things that people do believe. There's a writer, his name's G.K. Chesterton, and he said, when men stop believing in God, it's not that they then believe in nothing, but it's that they will believe in anything. And the truth is, if me and you aren't rooted, steeped in, digging into the Scripture on some sort of a frequent basis, you can easily end up just believing almost anything. And, and this word in verse 14, this word that is translated deceitful in the Greek, it's plane, and it is found... In, in, in sources outside of the Bible, it, it, in outside uh, literature, and it kind of describes like a traveling snake oil salesman. Y'all know what a snake oil salesman is? The, 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 the guy, the ShamWow towel salesman, okay? I'll give you that one. But it's the dude that is trying to sell anything, and he thinks he can sell anything because he can deceive you into thinking that you need it, right? And that's this word, plane, that is used. But it's also used... Of, of traveling or itinerant preachers tr that traveled the Roman Empire and they were kind of pitted uh, uh, kind of against each other. One of them being deceitful and, and shrewd and crafty and one who's kind of shooting straight. And it was just normal in, in that for one of them to throw just nasty darts, right? Just 
just verbal assaults at the other, but Christians were especially concerned with truth. And so they often applied that word, plane, which is deceitful or deceit or error, to the false teacher's methods, to the false teacher's teachings, and to the false teacher. And the reality, again, is that since the day, y'all, that Christ ran out, of the, ran out of that tomb alive, since that day, 2,000 years ago, Christians have been plagued with false teaching. And it began then with all the different crazy explanations of why that tomb was empty. Somebody stole the body. Oh, he didn't really die. You know, that, that, those things started the next day, y'all. And they, were, they tried to proliferate that around Jerusalem. It, 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 the, in this invasion like of false prophets, of false apostles, of false messiahs, and of false teachers, it's been something Christians have fought like forever. Satan always tries to overthrow the truth with lies. He tries to confuse you and the world so that you can't recognize the truths of God. And he does it by drowning these truths in a sea of deceit. In the very beginning, look in Genesis, man. Adam and Eve, what did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? Forever. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. It is what he does. And he is usually subtle, and he's a schemer, and he's cunning, and he's deceitful, and he hates your guts. And he hates the church's guts. And he makes the lie look so good. Like he makes the lie look good. It looks pretty good. Sounds pretty good. It seems like it's going to taste good. But at the end of the day, y'all, it's false. And it's not real. And I have heard some crazy stuff from pulpits, y'all. I have. Some of it obviously like wacko stuff. But most of it, is, it's subtle. It's just subtle. And, 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 and it's like a motivational speech that's just sprinkled with a little bit of Jesus to kind of make it sound good. But it is always a twisting of the scripture. I watched a super popular preacher uh, on, uh, on YouTube this week. And as far as I could tell, nearly every bit of what was said was a gross misrepresentation of scripture. From the pulpit, he said this. God wants, I'm quoting, God wants you rich. Hey man, that sounds pretty good to me. That's tickling my ears a little bit, right? He went on to say this. I'm quoting again. God needs you to have more than you need. If you're not rich, people will go to hell because the Great Commission won't have rich Christians funding it. Let me clear something up for y'all. God is in need of nothing. Nothing. He needs nothing from you. He has, does he have desires? Of course he does. But he is in need of nothing. Don't be deceived, y'all, by these half-truths. I heard from another big-time pulpit these words. And I'm quoting. Our words have creative power. When we speak something out, we're giving it the right to come to pass. It's one thing to believe that you're healed, but when you say, I am healed... That's what releases the healing. Let me clear this up. Your words don't have creative power. My words don't have creative power. I didn't speak things into existence. Y'all didn't. God spoke things into existence. 
Paul said, don't be tossed. Now, does that mean your words are meaningless? Of course that's not what it means, right? There's always just a little bit of truth that's in there. But Paul says, don't be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the wind of every doctrine. Teaching like this says, it's like this. They're saying, you decide what you want, and you name it and you claim it. And those teachings promise always health and wealth and prosperity. And y'all, they're false. They're false. These folks that say, that it's like they say faith is some mystical, powerful, personal force that allows you, that allows you to express some kind of supernatural energy and create a world that you want and have decided what it needs to look like. You just got to decide what it is that you want, and then you claim it. And typically what's not on the list of claims is humility and brokenness and repentance and holiness and purity of heart and worship and sacrifice and unselfishness and sacrificial love. No, those things aren't on the list. What is typically on the list is health and wealth and prosperity and financial success. And all of that is temporal material things y'all it is a false gospel it is a false gospel and it leads to a false salvation Paul says don't be taken in by 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 human cunning or craftiness in deceitful schemes for false teachings like this Jesus like becomes like a footnote to satisfy the people that are listening so don't be tossed to and fro by that but then I say, well, what makes that false teaching so attractive? Like, what makes it so attractive? If it's so destructive, how can it be so appealing to people? Let me tell you a little story, a little short story. A former policeman, he told about uh, being on duty during an ice storm, and the ice was about half inch thick on trees everywhere, and he was called to a site where a, a tree a branch had fallen down and, and knocked down um, the, uh, the power lines. And the, the, the officer's duty was to kind of stand watch around that tree where that power line had come down. And here's what he said. He said there was a small tree near the fallen power line. He said, you know, the kind with a short trunk and a lot of long, thin branches. And while that fallen power line was cracking and popping with electricity, it was throwing out sparks through the, through the branches all, over, all around that tree. And the sparks would reflect off the ice-covered branches, sending out a beautiful glimmering rainbow of colors and this officer said I stood there and watched and wondered how anything so beautiful could be so deadly that is what false teaching does like any other sin it can look really good and it can sound amazingly good but as you mature you'll be able to see beyond the surface and discern the truth Paul gives Timothy his spiritual son in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 3. Paul says this. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Now you got to remember, Paul is writing to Timothy as a leader in the church, a young leader, trying to coach him up on how to lead and shepherd a body. And so he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What he's saying is people are going to find somebody to tell them what it is they want to hear. And people do that all the time, y'all. Do it all the time. I had a cousin who, who, who when their baby was born, the, 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 she slept in their bed with them. 
from the day she was born, doctor said, baby doesn't need to be sleeping in the bed with y'all. Three months later, baby's still sleeping in the bed. Doctor says, you don't need to be, that baby doesn't need to be sleeping in the bed with y'all. Two years later, that baby's still sleeping in the bed with y'all. That baby don't need to be sleeping in the bed with y'all. So what'd they do? Somebody tell me what they did. They found another doctor. Like that's what Paul is saying. People go have itching ears and find somebody to scratch that itch. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist, y'all. Don't wander off into mist. Don't wander off into mist. So number one, so far, number one in being a grown-up is that we're to be mature in stature. And y'all, the local church, wherever that may be, should be teaching and preaching and leading and helping people to take steps towards Christ, to take steps towards Christ's likeness. And number two, we're to be, to be mature in stability. The local church should be teaching and preaching the gospel truth, the full gospel, not some watered-down half gospel. And then the third thing that defines being a grown-up is we're to be mature in speech, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Why are there so many people in churches with hurt feelings? And why is there so much division in modern Christianity? I have a mentor. He pastor, he's retired now, but he was a pastor in a church in Columbus for, for 45 plus years in the same church. Godliest man, y'all, I've ever met in my life. And he, and he said to me about 15 years ago, some of the meanest people I ever met, I met in church. I want to show you a Facebook post that we made this week on February the 3rd. This is the post. And I want to read to you, if you can't read that post, I want to read to you what that post said. It said, some see church as a place for squeaky clean people without a past. Church on the trail is different. No perfect people allowed. Jesus came for the people who needed forgiveness and love the most. That's what you'll find at church on the trail. We'd love to see you Sunday at 1030. Friday, a guy commented on that post. And, and that, here's that comment. Probably accurate. If no perfect people are allowed, that would mean Jesus isn't welcome either. Cute sales pitch, but so stupid. Okay, well, I, I gave that a big wow. It freaked Melody out. She's blowing my phone up. And I'm thinking, wow, man. Wow. Like, how Christ-like is the comment? And here's the coup de grace. He was a pastor. He was a pastor, y'all. Like, that's not the way we're supposed to talk to each other. That's just not the way we're supposed to talk to each other. I think one of the chief reasons for hurt feelings and division is folks who act like children in the way that they talk. And of course we got to speak the truth. Like, of course we got to speak the truth. I am committed to preaching the whole biblical truth from this stage every Sunday. It's a given but there's a little more to it than just the biblical truth. We need the love and the compassion that comes with Christian growth and maturity. There ought not be any division between truth and love. No separation between the two, and many people separate those two. Truth without love, truth without love can totally become brutality, and it can totally become like bullying. And love without truth can be empty, and it can be nothing but kind of sentimental words and it can be misleading and I pray y'all that, that that God would deliver 
us from the immature screaming of the folks who have loveless truth and from the immature emotionalism of the folks that have truthless love. You can't have either. Truth without love is condescending and arrogant and puffed up. But love without truth is misleading and it's fluffy and like dolled up. But truth plus love in a Christian is called being a grown-up. It's called growing up, and that's what Paul is saying. So we're to be mature in our speech, number three. And number four is where we're going to end today. We're to be mature in service. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each part in a healthy body helps the other parts. Each in its own way. In love, by love, we serve one another. This verse speaks of the church as a body, and it mentions joints. The Greek word for joints is harmos, and we get our word harmony from that. Mature people work together in, in harmonious interaction, like the joints in a body, even if we disagree. Y'all do know it is okay to disagree. It is okay to disagree with me. But the manner in which you disagree ought not get outside of harmonious, right? If I don't agree with you, it doesn't mean that I hate you. And if you don't agree with me, it doesn't mean that you hate me. We live in a world like even politically, them, them folks in Washington can't disagree with each other without calling the other one this laundry list of names. Like it just shouldn't be that way. It is okay to disagree. But it's not okay to be disharmonious. I don't know if that's a word or not, but you know what I mean. Whatever the opposite of harmonious is. Mature people can work together like the joints in a body, which is the church, that when it's lubricated with love. That comes from maturity. With immaturity, we fuss and we bicker over, over everything, and usually over the silly stuff. I told you all this story one time before. We're talking about service, but I want to tell you the rest of it. There's a cathedral in England that was bombed by the Germans in World War II, and it was really wrecked. And students got together to rebuild that cathedral, and they found in, in that cathedral a statue of Jesus, and they painstakingly put it back together, but the hands of the statue were completely destroyed in crumbles and couldn't be put back together. So these students, rather than replacing those hands uh, of the statue after they had put the statue together, they put a plaque beneath the statue, and the plaque read, Christ has no hands but ours. And y'all, there's some great, great truths in that. I desperately pray that the Lord would help every one of us to find a place to serve and be His hands and to be His feet. So number three, being grown up, is there would be to be mature in speech. And y'all, the local church ought to be teaching and preaching and leading and helping people to take steps towards understanding how to speak the truth with love and compassion. Not to not speak the truth, not to avoid the truth, right? But to speak the truth in love and compassion. And number four, we're, we're, again, we're to be mature in service that the local church should be teaching and preaching and providing opportunities for people to serve one another in love. Y'all, the Christian life is a life of growth. It is a life of growth. It's a life 
lifelong journey of maturing. And the local church, please hear this, that's made up of beautifully imperfect people. I am jacked up. Imperfect. All of us are imperfect, but that makes up the body of Christ. And that vehicle that we call a local church is the vehicle that God chose. You understand that? God chose the local churches in Columbus, in Phoenix City, in Oregon, in New York, wherever it may be. God chose the church to lead the charge. Like it is a privilege, y'all, to be chosen as, a, as part of the body of a local church to be, to be leading that charge. Don't, don't ever minimize, y'all, the role that a local church plays in coming alongside of imperfect, right, imperfect people and helping us all to mature. We talk all the time about getting connected and getting plugged in at Church on the Trail. This is how we serve the Lord and we serve each other and we grow. There are so many ways here to get plugged in and move towards maturity. Jump into a growth group. Jump into a Bible study. Our women's ministry, The Grove, <clears throat> meets once a month together um, in this room. They met Thursday night, and it was awesome. Not that I'm a woman and was there. My wife was there. It was awesome. They meet in smaller little pods all throughout the month, uh, uh, really every week. The men's ministry, Trailblazers, meeting every Thursday somewhere. Once a month, it's here. The other three times are in a different coffee shop somewhere. Plug into the jail ministry. Plug into the homeless ministry. Plug into the foster care prevention ministry. We have a new one that is starting today, actually, at 4 o'clock, that is uh, an assisted living kind of home ministry called Joyful Hearts. 4 o'clock today, the, the Oaks at Grove Park. Um, 4 o'clock today, going to minister and love on the people in that assisted living center. Serve somewhere on Sunday in, in kids or in tots, or in parking, or in the cafe, or in, at the connections desk, or on the host team, or on the greet team. Plug in somewhere. This is how we mature, and this is how we grow. If Sunday morning's message is all that you're going to get, it's not sufficient. It's not. Plugging in, locking arms, living life with other believers is where maturity and growth happens. And the devil hates it. The devil wants you isolated. That is what he wants. He wants you unconnected to people. He does. He does. And you can say, well, can't I just come to church and soak? Can't I just come in kind of anonymously and sit in the back, listen to a message, play around on Facebook, and then go home? Can't I just do that? Well, of course you can, man. You can do whatever you want to do. But you're going to miss out on what Christ is calling you to do and be as part of his church. You're going to miss out on much of what he has designed for you. You're going to miss out on the growth that happens when your arms are locked together with other believers on a mission. We are on a mission. The name of this church, Church on the Trail. It's a double entendre. That's a fancy word. We're going to physically be on that trail but we're on the trail on mission to be what the church is supposed to be. As a matter of fact, let me pray real quick, and then we'll be wrapping this up. Lord, 
we love you today. We thank you. Um, you can take that. We thank you for everything that you do. Lord, I pray that this group of believers, this group, this body that we call Church on the Trail, that you would do things in this family to help us grow, to help us mature, that we would lead people that don't know you to come to know you. Lord, that we would be mature in stature. Lord, that we would, that we would be mature in our instability, that we would be steeped in your word. Lord, that we would be mature in speech in the way that we talk to one another. So nobody could ever say some of the meanest people I ever met, I met at Church on the Trail. No, 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 no. That we would be mature in the way we speak and act towards one another. Not abandoning truth, but speaking truth in love. Lord, I pray that you would have us to do that. And Lord, I pray that we would be mature in service, that we would serve and love on one another and everyone that we come into contact with. And so, Lord, I lift our church family up to you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'll tell you this. Before you can even start this maturing thing, maturing in Christ, to be Christ-like, right? you got to be a believer. And so we're at this time in our service of some sort of response. And that response for you may be saying yes to that offer of salvation because it's there. It's always there. It's always there. But the whole gospel truth is there has to be repentance. Repentance, I turn I turn away from my sin. I don't become perfect. That is not what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from the sin. Is the temptation going to go away? Probably not. Sometimes he removes the temptation. I used to cuss like a drunken sailor, right? I'm not indicting the Navy. I used to cuss like crazy. Lots of other sin too, but somehow he took that one right away from one day to the next. Who knows if that's going to happen? Lots of times the temptation doesn't go away, so don't set your up for set yourself up for failure but there has to be a turning from the sin turning away from it and believing that Christ died on the cross to take care of that sin and you invite the Lord to save you and he will save you right now he will save you so if that is you today I invite you just to y'all close your eyes and bow your heads and, and, and scream this out or say it to yourself and the cross is available for you to come and, and pray at whatever that may be whatever needs you may have but here's what I would ask you to say, somehow or the other. Lord, let today be the day where I do turn from my sin, turn and run the other way from my sin, and I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And Lord, I ask you to save me right here today. I believe everything that you said about you. I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sin, and I invite you to save me. In Jesus' name.